Chris Breen, let's start with what can only be described as a very serious charge, incitement, specifically incitement to breach public health laws, but effectively incitement to protest, laid against you in relation to a refugee rights protest that took place last April. It was serious both in terms of the potential implications for yourself personally, as well as the wider repercussions for the right to protest and organise. Talk us through what happened uh, from your arrest through to eventually the dropping of the charge earlier this month. Um, okay, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, yeah, there were potentially serious implications, possible $20,000 fine, um, and also because I'm a school teacher, it has possible implications for my employment. Um, so on April the 10th, uh, Refugee Action Collective organised a car convoy, safe car convoy. Uh, during lockdown to drive around the Mantra Hotel. Uh, there was uh, no more than two people per uh, car. It was you know, completely safe to draw attention to the plight of the refugees there who had been locked up for six years offshore and a year onshore. They'd come for medical treatment, but by and large um, hadn't got it. And um, I didn't actually get to go to the protest on that day. The police turned up at my house at 12 o'clock, just before I was about to have lunch. And because my name and number was at the bottom of the Facebook event, I was arrested for incitement. Uh, So I spent nine hours in a police cell, uh, no social distancing by the the police, you know, to to wait in a car with an hour sitting with four of them. and uh, they took uh, my uh, computers, they took my phone, they took my son's computer. Uh, we had to go to court a couple of weeks later to, to get all of that um, back, um, thanks to Fitzroy Legal Service. And uh, the people who did go, there were 30 refugee supporters who were fined $1,652 each, um, a total of um, 50000 uh, dollars, and you know this is at the same time that you know Bunnings uh, was still open, doing a, a roaring trade. Um, in the same week, uh, there was a country fire authority car, car convoy of thirteen vehicles to celebrate somebody's hundredth birthday. Uh, there was a police car convoy to celebrate a little boy's birthday, you know, with flashing lights. But it, it was an attack on uh, the right to protest. Um, so Refugee Action Collective mounted a defence campaign. Um, we put out a statement, um, defend the right to protest and free the refugees, and we got eight unions to back that. I think every Greens MP in Victoria, um, you know, Labour for refugees. Um, so we got significant support, which I do think was important. And every time we had a... Um, a court hearing, and you know, it took up quite a lot of time. There were at least four four days of hearings. Uh, there was a, a protest um, outside the uh, court. Uh, the magistrate actually walked past one of them one of one of the days. Um, and in the end, I have been found uh, not guilty, which is um, you know personally relieving. But I think also. Um, it is important for the you know for the wider social movements and the the union movement. Um, the uh, incitement it, it carried you know the incitement charge hasn't been used since 1992 against a student protest. Um, I was 35 and they were found not guilty as well. 
incitement is mostly a, a charge that's used for murder cases, as the magistrate um, pointed out. And if I had have been found guilty, I think it would have had a chilling effect on protest um, in Victoria and perhaps more widely. I mean, we've already seen during the pandemic an attempt to uh, criminalise and smear protests like the Black Lives Matter protests also fined and attacked, uh, despite the fact there's never been a COVID case uh, transmitted from a protest anywhere in Australia. Chris, you were charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act. What's striking about that is you weren't charged under any new legislation or even emergency powers afforded the Daniel Andrews government under the conditions of what is, and certainly was at that time, a public health crisis of great magnitude. This raises the question of police powers being abused under the cover of the COVID-19 crisis. Speak to that point uh, in terms of what's happened in Victoria specifically, and and you've touched on uh, what's happening uh, in the country more broadly as well. But but, uh, Victoria, arguably, the the worst case, I I should think, in terms of the abuse of police powers in the last uh, 12 months, visibly not just protesting and political organising, but the curtailment of, of basic freedoms and liberties. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you have seen uh, crackdown on protests in New South Wales and, and elsewhere as well, but perhaps it's, it's it's darkest in Victoria. And I think the charge against myself and fellow refugee activists was tied up with the policing of the um, lockdown. Um, and so there are a whole range of um, draconian measures introduced to do that. I mean, perhaps the uh, the most revolting was the hard lockdown of the public housing towers. So you had, uh, you know, 3,000 residents who were locked down, I think, for almost two weeks. Um, uh, you had 500 police stationed on the towers on every floor of the building. Uh, they couldn't get out to get medicine. Uh, there was food running in halls that they couldn't get. Um, it's, you know, it was a, a, a disaster. It was a breach of their human rights as the... Um, ombudsman has found. I mean, there are other things as well that had nothing to do with um, health. So there was a 9pm curfew. There was a limit of five kilometres that you could drive from the house that was effectively admitted later on that these were policing measures, not um, health measures. Um, and, at the, you know, the, there were no uh, private towers, which are very similar to the public housing ones, locked down. And these were towers that were filled with, um, you know, predominantly uh, uh, migrant um, uh, residents. Uh, two of the towers had no COVID cases at all, um, but they were uh, locked down anyway. Um, so it has been a worrying thing. I mean, you, you can also look um, internationally, uh, you know, places like the Philippines where Duterte's used gun squads, I mean, death squads to kick clear people off the streets. In Hungary, they suspended parliament. Now, obviously, it's not quite the same here, but nonetheless, it has been important that we uh, won in court on the incitement grounds, uh, the, the charge. I mean, the fines are still, um, unfortunately, going ahead. Um, so the, the grounds on which I was found not guilty was a fairly narrow factual one, uh, that they didn't have uh, enough evidence that it was me and not somebody else from the the Refugee Action Collective. They couldn't prove particular dates. Um, Those technical things, I think, though, it it was a way of dealing... Well, unfortunately, what that means is that the fines are still going ahead. So we're going to have to fight those as well. Uh, we don't have court dates for the people yet. That's likely to come up in July. We'll have protests outside the courts. 
Uh, one of the people fined, interestingly, told us recently the local police had contacted them and said if they come into the station and sign something, they'll just get a warning. Now, we don't yet know what they're being asked to sign and what's involved, so that's, but we're, it, we'll be watching that carefully. Broadening out the discussion a little, Chris, and uh, perhaps at the risk of going outside the, the purview of uh, the subject that we've brought you on to to talk about, but because uh, it is a very uh, big subject, we we could talk all day about uh, you know the broader political questions of of lockdown. But could it be argued that uh, the left, or I should say, sections of the left rather, have been caught in a vice of its own contradictions by? really supporting lockdowns in a very uh, broad brushstrokes, carte blanche kind of way. And so when there were scenarios like um, the very brutal lockdown of the North Melbourne public housing towers, at least some sections of the left were uh, caught on the hop, so to speak, in terms of uh, having given really, as I say, pretty carte blanche uh, support to, for, for government uh, lockdowns. Um I guess I'll speak in a, a personal capacity here because the Refugee Action Collective doesn't have a, a position on lockdown one way or the other. Uh, but I, I broadly, I think that is true. So while there were, you know, parts of the left from, um, you know, Trades Hall to the, the Greens who were critical of some aspects of the hard public housing tower lockdown, uh, they did uh, still support it. They just thought it needed to be differently and I think the lockdown politics um, has had a chilling effect on protest. Uh, it's made people more reluctant to come out. It's taken a lot of work to get people back in the streets. Um, we had a, a big rally of, say, I think it was you know, seven, 800 in uh, January. Um, the Refugee Action Collective, I think, was the first mass rally we'd had. And then finally, um, we had the, the Palm Sunday rally here of 2,000 people, but that was touch and go whether that would go ahead at, at one point. Uh, so it's, it's had that impact. And the other, the other part of it, I think, as well, while I'm not, you know, um, anti-lockdown, I think as the first, it's, it's the wrong thing to call for as the, the first measure. I do think there are, uh, health things, whether it's contact um, tracing, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> and testing, uh, whether that's ending casualisation, so you know people have got to, a, a choice to stay home. You know, there's uh, improving, um, you know, commandeering public uh, private hospitals if needed. There's a, there's a whole range of measures that I think the that the left could and, and should be um, calling for. But as you say, that's outside of the, the, the purview of my, you know, is what I do as a refugee activist, and I am speaking in a, a personal capacity there. You, you mentioned earlier, Chris, that uh, it's very much marginalised, poor, oppressed people who were the target of uh, certainly abuse of police powers uh, during the, the lockdown period in Victoria, uh, and they, they were subject to you know unaccountable, uh, illegal search and seizure, detention, arrest, fines, and so forth. And that brings us, in a sense, full circle uh, back to the original refugee rights protest itself, the one you allegedly incited in April last year. Some 60 refugees were being detained at the time uh, at the Mantra Hotel, following their being flown to Australia from Manus Island for medical reasons. They were not at that time kept safe under COVID protocols, a form of gross hypocrisy, it has to be said, by the government. Uh, and indeed, so-called alternative places of detention, like the Kangaroo Point Hotel in, in Brisbane, uh, where there was some protest action uh, yesterday, by the way, uh, continue to be used by the Federal Home Affairs Ministry. Uh, yes, there's a lot in there. Um, starting with the discriminatory policing, um, 
it actually people from Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islander backgrounds, uh, migrant backgrounds were discriminate, uh, you know, disproportionately fined by the policing measures. So it was not where the COVID cases were actually um, happening. And Victoria handed out three times more COVID case fines than any other state, but that didn't stop the, the second wave here. And when it came to COVID themselves, yeah, the refugees were absolutely unable to protect themselves. They had a real fear um, of uh, getting COVID. Um, you know, in the early days when they were at the Mantra Hotel, they had guards who were handling them without any uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, there were international travellers coming in and out of the hotel. They were three to a room, tiny kitchen where they all had to be crowded. Um, and, you know, there have been guards. Uh, there's been a guard who, who contracted um, COVID-19. And certainly now there are 13 refugees in Port Moresby um, that I'm aware of that have uh, COVID-19. Um, and, you know, sadly, what refugee advocates have argued was it, that it was the refugees that are at risk. And, you know, we haven't seen any charges brought against the uh, Morrison government for, you know, for, for actually, um, uh, you know, uh, putting uh, refugees um, at risk in, in that regard. I might have missed the last bit of your question. But, um, well, just the fact that, uh, and you've already touched on it, that refugees are, do continue to be detained. And um, oh, yeah. as the refugee action groups have argued, under conditions where there isn't uh, uh, you know, safe social distancing or, or proper protocols, health protocols. No, there's not. It's, um, we argued it both as a humanitarian and a public health measure. Like you saw, COVID just ripped through prisons in the United States. Um, but they shouldn't be being detained anyway. Uh, we have seen, um, sort of as a result of legal action and protest, uh, a lot of the Medivac refugees have been freed, but there's still over 80 detained. There's 11 detained in the Park Hotel in Melbourne. They've been there for almost um, eight years now. It's a crime. It shouldn't be happening. They should be, uh, they should be released. As you said, Kangaroo Point, they moved the remaining ones from the hotel there into Bita Detention Centre by force the other day, and there was protest over that. I mean, they've been refugees being transferred from one detention centre to another detention centre again and again. Um, the government has no alternative for them. It can't return them to Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's not accepting New Zealand offer. There is nowhere else but here in Australia, and that's where they should release them into the community. It's disturbing, isn't it, the way that's an ongoing human rights abuse that's really gone completely off the radar of the mainstream media here. Finally, Chris Breen, the, drop, the dropping of the incitement charge can, it seems to me, be recorded as a victory for not only the refugee rights campaign but the right to protest and organise more broadly. As you mentioned earlier, some 30 protesters, however, still face looming fines. Um, their cases uh, will be heard later this year. Uh, how do you sell, assess the balance of forces? It's kind of a, a, a shifting uh, chessboard, so to speak. But um, how do you assess the balance of forces, particularly now that things have settled down to an extent with the vaccine rolling out? Um, but how do you assess that uh, situation in terms of what is happening to, you know, to the right to protest and organise under the cover of, of the COVID-19 crisis? Um, we we did have a, a win. I, I think it's worth categorising that. It's a narrow win, but a win um, nonetheless. Um, and I think on the ground, we have re-won, um, you know, substantially the right to uh, protest. Um, you know, at least, as you say, while well, things have um, settled down. But having said that, it's it's not clear-cut. Uh, the fines are still uh, going ahead. 
There are a number of grounds that the magistrate didn't rule on because she ruled on factual grounds. Uh, so the question of whether we came under care and compassion, uh, the question of there's you know legislation that's written to be a reasonable uh, excuse, and that comes to questions of um, implied right of political communication, human rights legislation in Victoria. So none of that has been ruled on, which um, will be uh, part of the argument around the fines. Um, so in lots of other cases where there have been protests. Um, people have paid the fines. We are challenging them, and it will it will be another um, important test. Uh, and we'll you know continue to to mobilise to defend those people who've been fined, and to keep fighting for the right to protest, and keep fighting for the you know refugees to be freed and freed with support in the community.